context of, of uh, the Christians in Rome. What was Rome like? What was uh, the city like? What was the empire like? What was the, the, the cultural, historical context? And what, how, that, how did that uh, play out for the Christians at Rome? Uh, that'll probably come up again later, out through, later on throughout the series as well. And then uh, the purposes of, Rome, of Romans. Why did Paul write the book of Romans? And I'm going to try to weave some of those purposes into the message this morning. So hopefully that will come through uh, fairly clearly. So that's what I was going to do. What I'm doing instead is focusing on what, what does Paul say about the gospel in these opening verses. And that in itself, I think, will provide a good uh, second introduction to the series on Romans. So Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, like I said, next week I'm going to be gone. Ben has graciously uh, agreed to, to jump right in to Romans. And so he's going to pick up where I leave off. And uh, I'm really thankful for that. And uh, we uh, pray for God's blessing on him as he continues uh, the series of Romans next week. Let's... Uh, Bow together as we prepare for the reading of God's word this morning. <clears throat> Lord God, it is so good to be in your house to worship as we ponder the magnificence and the glory of Christ and the goal of you, Lord God, and your glory exalted among all the nations. I pray now, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would speak to us this morning in just the way that you know that we need to hear, in a way that is faithful to this text that we are going to look at this morning. So may your spirit stir our hearts so that it will be received fruitfully for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. We looked at that verse last week, so we're not going to touch on that this morning. But set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. <clears throat> For those of you who, uh, who don't know, the, the Babylon Bee is a conservative Christian satire website. And so it publishes satirical articles on issues ranging from religion to uh, politics to current events. And uh, one of the articles uh, recently, for obvious reasons, caught my attention. And so this is the headline. It says, Reformed Pastor Completes Brief... 47-year-long sermon series on Book of Romans. 
And the article goes on to say, wrapping up the series that began during the Vietnam War, (laughs) Reformed Minister Michael Foster preached the final sermon in the series on Sunday morning. The last message was a breezy one-hour exposition of Romans 16, verse 27d, (laughs) which reads, Amen. Foster's series had many highlights. Several elderly church members recalled being particularly fond of the three years he spent on Romans 3 during the Reagan administration. There's a lot to unpack there in Romans, the pastor told reporters, but you can't take too long or you start to lose people's interest. Most churchgoers can only hang in there for four or five decades before they start to check out. And the pastor went on to say that he had considered condensing the series to an even 30 years, but decided against that when he realized that he would have to cut out his five-year historical background section to make it work. And after all, he said, 30-year-long sermon series really are for megachurches and heretics. (laughs) So I can assure you that we won't take 47 years to work our way through the book of Romans. Uh, Lori reminded me that I would be 94 years old if we did by the time it was all over. But it is true that there's a lot to unpack in this dense book. And as we turn our attention uh, to these opening verses this morning, like I, like I mentioned, we see that the, the focus really falls on the gospel. Paul's introductory, introductory sections to his letters are, are always indicative of, of the, the content of, of the letter to, to follow. And so his focus on the gospel is another clue that, as you saw last week, the, the overarching dominant theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. And we gave... For those of you who were not here last week, we gave this very basic definition of the gospel. And again, like I said last week, you you, you ought to have in your mind a a well-formulated, clearly articulated, ready response if anybody were ever to ask you, what is the gospel? And so the basic definition that we gave last week is that the gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the sacrificial death and perfect righteousness of Christ. And now in these opening verses, we see four foundational truths about this gospel that Paul proclaimed. We see first that it's a gospel promised in the Old Testament. When Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, he describes this gospel as the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel that Paul proclaimed was not a new or or an alien gospel. It was the very same gospel anticipated by the prophets. The Jesus that we follow is the one pictured and promised in the Old Testament. So you can't just sort of say, I'm going to follow Jesus and I just kind of leave the God of the Old Testament behind. Just give me Jesus, I'll leave, you know, leave the rest. No, you can't do that. Jesus is, by his own words, the very same one with the God of the Old Testament. And he is the one pictured and promised throughout the Old Testament. He is the great son of man described in Daniel 7. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the promised light to the Gentiles in Isaiah 49 verse 6. He is the anointed one sent to free the captives in Isaiah 61. And do you remember what Luke said about the risen Jesus and his encounter with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? He said, and beginning... With Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures 
concerning himself. What a grand statement that is and what a huge indicator of who Jesus really is. What all the scriptures had said, the whole scope of scriptures, the whole sweep of all the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus said, he explained to them what they were saying about himself. Graham Goldsworthy said the New Testament reveals Christ as the fulfiller of the promises, prophecies, and expectations of the Old Testament. Christopher Wright said the Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes and it declares the promises that Jesus fulfills. Al Mohler said the gospel story is the long-awaited conclusion that fulfills all promises and realizes all types and shadows of the Old Testament. The message is clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the longings and expectations of the Old Testament, which is why we sing around Christmas time, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Benjamin Warfield once described I think very helpfully, described the Old Testament as a richly furnished but dimly lit room. So the Old Testament, he said, is a a richly, beautifully furnished but dimly lit room. And only when a light is turned on do you see clearly the contents of that room. And with the coming of Christ, he said, the light has been turned on. And so we see in him all the beauties and the wonders and the intricacies of the gospel that had been there in the Old Testament were kind of hidden in the shadows as if in a dimly lit room. And this is one of the reasons why the Bible is then such a precious and holy and sacred and beautiful book because the whole thing reveals the good news of the gospel. And this creates then, or it ought to create within us a yearning for the word. As as John Wesley once put it, I want to know one thing, and that is the way to heaven. And God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book, he says. At any price, give me the book of God. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. The gospel Paul proclaimed is a gospel promised in the Old Testament. The second thing we see in these opening verses is that it is a unifying gospel centered in Christ. Paul says the gospel of God was the gospel regarding his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, we'll come back to this again and again, but this is so central to Paul's theology. And it obviously... It goes without saying, I suppose, but without Christ, there is no gospel. I mean, everything, all of the gospel from beginning to end and everything in the middle, everything revolves around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Without him, we are still in our sins and under the wrath of God. But notice how Paul describes Christ, the Son, in verse 3. He says, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now, Why would Paul call Jesus a descendant of David? Well, I mean, obviously because it was true. But beyond that, I think that Paul points this out because he wants his readers to see that the Jesus he proclaimed was a Jesus that sprang from Jewish heritage. 
He wants his readers to know that the gospel is rooted in Jewish soil. And why would he want his readers to know that? Well, because, and here's where we'll talk about one of the, the purposes. Why did, why, why did Paul write Romans? Well, one of the purposes in writing Romans is to bring unity to the deep brokenness between Jewish and Gentile believers. That's, that is a, one of the central purposes in Romans, to bring unity to the brokenness, the divide between Jewish and Gentile believers. You see, Paul was writing to a Christian community in Rome that was fractured and conflicted with deep and seemingly irreconcilable divides between Jews and Gentiles. And as we saw last week, I think I mentioned this last week, that this divide was was deepened by a historical event in the year 49 AD when the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And if you go back farther than that, this, this is, will be relevant for us to, to understand, well, how did the, the church at Rome begin? Well, it began, it had Jewish origin. It, we don't know for sure. It wasn't started by Paul, we know that. But likely, we read in Acts chapter 2 that when, when uh, people from all the nations were gathered at Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2 that Visitors from Rome were there. God-fearing Jews and, and people who converted to Judaism from Rome were there at Pentecost hearing Peter proclaim, proclaim the gospel of Christ when thousands were coming and being converted and the Holy Spirit was poured out and drawing waves upon waves of people to the Lord. And there were, Jewish, there were Jews from Rome listening to that. And most likely, they were conver- some were converted went back to Rome and started the church there. So it had Jewish origin. And so going back to now 49 AD, when the Roman emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, uh, when the Jews came back to Rome five years later, the church that had been Jewish in origin was now what? Run by the Gentiles. And the two groups, let's just say, didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. The Jewish Christians wanted all followers to observe the Jewish law, so they come back expecting, well, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, maintain observance to the Jewish law. The Gentile Christians uh, supported and wanted and, 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 and uh, were passionate about a law-free gospel. The Jewish Christians were proud of their favored status. We are God's chosen covenant people. The Gentile Christians were proud of their freedom. And so Paul saw these, these deep fractures and frictions and tensions and hostilities and divides, and he wanted to pour oil on, the, on these troubled waters and bring the two groups to unity. And so throughout the letter, we see Paul sort of building these bridges of unity in Christ between Jews and Gentiles, and that's what we see in these opening verses. Paul is showing that the gospel that is drawing Gentiles to salvation is the very gospel that is centered in Jesus, who is a Jewish descendant of David. And it's only in Christ that Jews and Gentiles can come together as the one family of God. And of course, what Paul hints at here in Romans 1, he makes explicit in Ephesians 2. He says there that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are unified through the cross. He said Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, that is the, the Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. <clears throat> it is in Christ alone that Jews and Gentiles can be brought together in unity. And this is one of the central, one of the main purposes of Romans is for Paul to accomplish that. And we'll see that again and again throughout, throughout the book, especially in Romans 9 through 11. 
So as we study Romans, my, uh, one of my hopes and prayers is that we too will experience this unifying power of the gospel in Christ. Because the church today is still fractured and conflicted, isn't it? With, with all kinds of political divides and polarizing social issues. In fact, the churches, I, I think, has been over the last couple of years probably more fractured and divided than it has been in a really long time. And like the Romans, we need the unifying gospel centered in the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that throughout our study of Romans, that's one of the things that God will do in us, will we'll bring about this, this unifying effect in the gospel. The third thing we see in these opening verses is that the gospel is for all nations. We've been singing about that already this morning. And Paul says, through Christ we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And he goes on to say in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the great commission and he said, therefore, go and make disciples of, of all nations. And when John saw his vision of worshipers at the end of redemption history, we see the fulfillment of that great commission for John saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. The gospel is universal in scope. It is good news for all nations. And Paul was caught up in this mission of bringing the gospel to all the nations. He said at the end of his letter, in chapter 15, he said, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. That is to those people groups where the gospel has never gone, where nobody has ever heard of this this man that we worship as Jesus, this man God we worship as Jesus. As it is written, Paul says, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So Paul had this burning passion in his heart to take the gospel to those places where Christ was not known. And this brings to the surface then another one of the main purposes in Paul's writing of Romans. And that is, as we, uh, just, so as we just saw, one of the purposes was to unify Jews and Gentiles. But another purpose was to prepare the church in Rome to support his mission to preach the gospel to those who, had ne who have never heard. If you remember from last time, we, saw, uh, we said that Paul wrote Romans during his three-month stay in Corinth. And so on this map, if you can't see, I'm not sure how well you can see, but there are uh, four red stars with four white, uh, corresponding white boxes, and all those are significant locations uh, for, for Paul in relation to Romans. At the far right, you have Jerusalem, and then uh, moving over to the left, you have Corinth, and then uh, the next one over to the, to the left is Rome, and then the farthest one at the far left is Spain. And so as we said uh, last time, Paul wrote Romans uh, during his three-month stay in Corinth. So the, the second one from the right, uh, he was uh, staying in Corinth for three months. That's when he wrote Romans on his third missionary journey. And at this point in his ministry, Paul said that he had fully proclaimed the gospel 
in the east. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans in chapter 16. He says he had fully proclaimed the gospel in the east. And so that circle on the right, Paul had, had, had been there. He'd gone all throughout those, that, that region multiple times, planting churches, sharing the good news of Jesus. And, and, and the church is growing. Followers are, are spreading. And, and so all throughout that region, Paul says he had sufficiently proclaimed the gospel. In fact, he went, on, went so far as to say in chapter 15 that there was no more place for him to work in these regions. Well, what did he mean by that? I mean, there, there was obviously a lot of work to be done because he, we know that from his letters to those churches in those regions, there was, there was a lot of conflicts, there was a lot of issues that he addressed. So there was work to be done. But what Paul meant by that was that, was that he had sufficiently spread the gospel to these nations in the east. So there was, in that sense, there was no more work to be done. The gospel has been proclaimed. This is now a reached people group in a reached region. And now his heart was calling him west the unreached people of Spain. You see, Paul knew the great commission that Jesus had given to make disciples of all nations. And the Spirit was prompting his heart to live in obedience to that command, to preach the gospel to those who had never heard, to bring the, the gospel uh, where Christ was not known. The gospel message had been proclaimed in the east, the circle on the right, but there were, there were unreached people groups to the west, the circle on the left. Christ was not known there. There was no gospel. There was no, no hint, no word, no understanding at all of who this Jesus is. And Rome, as you can see in the, on the map, is strategically located right in between. You see, it was Paul's hope to use Rome as a base of operations for his gospel mission to Spain. And in order to do that, he, he needed the support of the church in Rome. And this is why the letter to the Romans is such a thorough presentation of his gospel and his doctrine. He's kind of like a missionary. Well, he is. He's, he's a missionary trying to raise support from a local church for his missionary work. He wants to lay out his gospel mission in the most thorough and compelling way to get them on board so that the gospel can spread to all the nations. That is a significant and a major purpose in his writing of Romans. And there is, of course, a lesson in here for us as well, isn't there? The mission that so captured Paul's heart is, is a mission that still stands. Like Paul, we are called to bring the gospel to all nations. That, that is very clearly the commission that we are given. It's not just for some select few. It is Jesus commissions believers, commissions the church to make disciples of all nations. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a disciple maker. We are to bring the good news of Jesus to those who have never heard. As David Platt recently said in, in, a, to his, in the Together for the Gospel conference, he said the Great Commission is not a general command to make as many disciples as possible. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. That's a critical distinction, I think, because often we think of the, the Great Commission just meaning, well, to go out into our neighborhoods, into our communities, to share the good news of Jesus with, with neighbors and friends and colleagues. Absolutely do that. We're, we're called to do that. That's, that's a great thing to do. But that's not really at the heart of the Great Commission. Because the, the people in our neighborhoods and communities, they are... They are a reached group. They, they are people who have been exposed, most likely been exposed to the gospel. 
And so the Great Commission, at the heart of the Great Commission, is this specific command to make disciples among all the nations, to go to those places where Christ is not known. And therefore, as David Platt concludes, if we are not living and dying to make disciples of all nations, then we are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of God. That is a, that is a strong statement. And it, it doesn't mean, we need to put this caveat in there, it doesn't mean that we all have to pack up and move to, to Spain-like places in the world, that, we, that if we're not you know, in an unreached people group region, that we're being disobedient to the, commission, the Great Commission. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we are all called and commissioned by God to live and work and, and to give and to pray with zeal, to see disciples made and, and churches multiplied and the glory of God exalted among all the nations. It does mean that. If we are not living toward this end and leading our families toward this end and leading our churches toward this end, then we are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of God. The gospel is good news for all the nations. Finally, the gospel is a gospel of obedience that comes from faith. Paul says, through Christ we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners is not like a, a closed container. It's not something that we just you know, merely receive and enjoy. It's, it's more like a funnel. It, it, it's meant to flow through us in a lifetime of obedience. Or to put it another way, it is not possible to accept Christ as Savior without surrendering to him as your Lord. You see, a proper understanding of the gospel takes seriously the problem of sin as disobedience. Disobedience and rebellion against God. That's what sin is, lawlessness, disobedience, disobeying, rebelling against God. And so we, we don't hold out to the world sort of a, a soft and polite gospel, which is what I think the approach that we so often take, a gospel that merely invites people to accept what we think would be good for them. You know, if, if you're so inclined to take it, we have this thing that it works for us and it's really good for us and we think it would be good for you. And so here's the gospel, but if you don't want it, that's okay. I don't want to offend you. So don't take it if you don't want it, but, but it's been good for me. And so I'm going to offer it to you. You can take it or you can leave it. And, and, and here it is. That's not the gospel. We don't hold out to the world a soft and polite gospel that merely invites people to accept what we think would be good for them. We offer a gospel that commands people to repent of their hell-deserving sin and to start living in obedience that comes from faith. That's what the gospel commands. In fact, this is how Paul himself preached the gospel, isn't it? In Acts chapter 17, he preached to the Athenians about their sin, and he concluded by saying to them that in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, he doesn't suggest, he doesn't invite, he commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel is a gospel of obedience that comes from faith. And throughout our study of Romans, we will see how this gospel is not a static gospel. 
but it's a gospel that compels people to a lifetime of obedience. And if we present it as anything less, then we diminish its power. Remind you again that the title of the series is Romans, the power of the gospel. If we present a soft and, and, a, and a diminished, reduced version of the gospel, we, we diminish its power. As James Boyce said, by failing to present the gospel as a command to be obeyed, we minimize sin, trivialize discipleship, rob God of his glory, and delude some into thinking that all is well with their souls when actually they are perishing. The gospel message is not a message of what God has done for us in Christ so that we can now live for ourselves and do what we want. It is a message of what God has done for us in Christ so that we are compelled to live in gratitude and obedience. As A.W. Tozer once said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. In his book, uh, Eat This Book, Eugene Peterson told how he began running at the age of 35, and he got really, really into running. He, he was, uh, got to the point where he's doing 10Ks once a month and, and running a full marathon at least once a year. And, and he, was, he, he was so into it that he uh, had subscribed to three different running magazines, and he would just devour these magazines. He would read them cover to cover. And he said that his reading of these magazines would, would deepen his experience of running. So they're kind of, they're intimately connected. But then he says he, he pulled a muscle and he stopped running for a few months. And he said that during that time when, when he was not running, he said those same three magazines kept coming, but he never once read them. Never even read a single word. And it wasn't until he started running again that he resumed his reading. And then it dawned on him, he said that his reading was so intimately tied to his experience of running. So that if he wasn't running, then reading just kind of felt empty and flat, and there was really no motivation to read at all. And he went on to say that it's the same thing with our reading of Scripture. That if we're not living in active response to what we read, then our reading is just empty and flat, and we eventually stop reading altogether because it just doesn't hold our interest anymore. And so he said the most important question to ask in our reading of Scripture is not, what does this mean? but how can I obey? And it's the same thing with the gospel. The gospel is meant to be actively lived out, and, and it calls for active response to the good news of Jesus. Those two are so intimately connected that if we're not doing the one, the gospel itself is going to become flat and meaningless, and, and we'll have no real motivation to embrace its beauty and its wonder. The gospel is a gospel of obedience that comes from faith. Tim Keller once summarized the gospel in two sentences. Number one, you are more sinful than you ever dared to believe. And number two, you are more loved than you ever dared to hope. We see both of these truths in the cross of Christ. And our study of Romans will take us there again and again and again. May God give us eyes to see at the cross how grievously we have sinned and how deeply we are loved. And then we will know the real power of the gospel. Let's bow together.
Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent prayer and response, I pray that you would speak to our hearts the beauties and the wonders as we contemplate these four foundational truths about the gospel. Lord, if we as a church or as individuals need to be convicted and need to repent, then lead us to conviction and repentance. If we have failed to embrace the, the, the real meaning and the, the, the zeal for the Great Commission to make disciples among all the nations, if we have not embraced the gospel as a gospel that calls for an obedience that comes from faith, if we have allowed ourselves to become fractured and divided with hostilities and tensions over fellow believers and have not realized the unifying power of the gospel. Oh Lord, bring to our hearts and minds those things this morning and hear our silent prayers of confession as you bring them before your throne. Lord Jesus, we praise you and honor you and exalt you as the one in whom there is salvation for all the nations, for every tribe and language and people and nation. We exalt you, O Lord, as Lord of the universe. For God exalted you to the highest place and gave you the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. O oh Lord, we honor you as Lord this morning. May we live out in obedience and faith the wonder and beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.